All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It's the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast, in case you're wondering, where we talk about theology and psychology and maybe the Bible, some religion, different stuff. Hey, today we're talking about mountains. That's right. All the above, plus Renee Girard, because we got our friend, the Reverend Brian Zahn, on. BZ is probably pretty well known on this podcast. He's been on before, and some of you have heard me reference him. Actually, man, 2015, 2017, somewhere in there, I probably read every one of his books. I probably listened to every one of his sermons. So he was an important figure during that time, uh, for sure. So I'm grateful that he has played that role and that he is with us here today. All right, first of all, a couple of things. we got to talk about Theology Beer Camp. It's coming up in October. Make sure you use my name now. The promo code is simply Jonathan Foster, and you'll get 25 bucks off the ticket. So Theology Beer Camp is a chance to get a bunch of podcasters and theologians together I am a podcaster. I am something of a theologian. I'd like to say lowercase t, theologian. And so my friend Trip Fuller invited me to be a part of the God Pod squad. So I'm going to do that. Now, I'm not much of a beer drinker, so I'm going to bring that part down. But the rest of it uh, should be a lot of fun, and I hope that you'll join us. Second thing I got to talk about, Girardian Intersections. It's happening on Eventbrite. It's an online conference we're doing August 19th. Brian will be a part of that, as well as myself, Tom Ord, Andre Rabe, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw, and Julia Robinson Moore. So I hope you'll join us for that. Make sure you pick up your tickets for four hours of sweet Girardian goodness. Okay, thanks for hanging out with me. And uh, I think you'll enjoy this conversation with... Brian. Peace, everyone. What's up, everyone? This is my good friend, Dr. Dr. Sure. Dr. Brian Zahn. <laughs> I talk to too many. I talk to too many doctors, but you're I, I am your non-academic friend. No, Just keep see, you that's tethered funny. to the real world, to the <laughs> <laughs> to the masses, to the common man. You see, that's a, probably a Freudian slip because uh, you're smarter than most doctors I know anyhow. So it it's all good. Um, anyhow, this is my friend Brian, and it's good to have you. Uh, most people listening, you know, know of Brian, but he's an author and a pastor and um, has been a big help to me. And I know lots of people in the last several years going through deformation and reformation and reassimilation and all the interesting theological spiritual things that we Christians find ourselves in the uh, in the milieu of what is American Christianity so thanks for being with me man yeah it's my pleasure glad absolutely. to be here absolutely well our agenda today is pretty loose but um, I, I definitely want to talk to you a bit about you know, some of your current projects, I know you're in the middle or towards the end of a, of a big writing project. Mm-hmm. 
And then uh, at some point, we certainly would want you to introduce, you know, maybe briefly, without giving it all away, what you might talk about at the Girard conference yeah. that you and I are going to be a part of, as of this recording, one month from today. Um, and I'm sure yeah. I'll say it later, but if I forget, people can search for Girardian Intersections on Eventbrite, pick up their ticket. And then, um, so so those two things, but how about we start with this? Let's talk about mountains. Yeah, let's do. What do you want to talk about? Well, I think I was just a minute ago before I turned the computer on, I was thinking, so I think the first time I met you uh, was at a Nazarene Pastors like conference thing down in Branson, probably around. Yeah, I remember that. And um, I thought, I don't know what's up with this guy's theology, but he talks about Rocky Mountain National Park. I mean, anyone who knows Hallett and Meeker and Flattop and Long's, you know, and talks about the fire trail. He, his, yeah, his that's, that's the secret. Yeah, his theology's got to be good. So yeah. I don't know. I think, what do I want to say? I want to say something like, you can't, I don't think you can really be a full, the full human being the best kind of version of what maybe love's inviting you to do without getting out into the wilderness at times. Agree, disagree, why or why not? I think I think theologians need to be in love with the outdoors. I'll say that much for sure. I think if if theologians do all of their work in the closed confines of indoors with artificial light. You're in danger of having too small a vision of God. And I know that when I'm up above the tree line, there in the, you know, the high tundra with the vast expanse where the, where the flowers are a millisecond and the sky is forever, that's when it's impossible for me to think small things about God or think about God in any way that is petty. And so, I mean, I love. I mean, I love the outdoors. I love you know, and the, the outdoors that you know that's that's everything that's not indoors, right? I mean, <laughs> that covers a lot of territory. But I'm partial to the mountains. You know, I like all you know, whatever forests and 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 beaches and streams and rivers. But I but I I love the mountains. And it's there are some things that we don't necessarily get to choose to love. We just find out that we fell in love with them. And for me, the mountains have been that way. Um, I'm 64, so I don't make any secret about how old I am. And so uh, climbing like I used to, I probably I probably is not wise to attempt. You know, I mean, you, you have to be, you know, judicious in, in how you approach these sorts of things. But But I love the mountains, and I love... Being there, hiking there, doing some climbing, although those are those days are mostly, I think, behind me. Um, Rocky Mountain National Park, the, you know, the, the gateway to that is Estes Park, Colorado. And that's been for our family, our kind of our home away from home for 30 years. Yeah, you know, if if you could just make life the way you wanted to, I would live there and still be able to do everything I do here. Now, you know that that's that it doesn't work that way, but that's yeah. how I think about it. But we've been going there. 
you know, two, three, four times a year, every year for 30 years. And so we know it quite well. I have three sons and they're all, you know, they're all grown now by now. Uh, my youngest son is 31. And, um, but I would take all of my sons, you know, as I got old enough, hiking and then some climbing and all of that. And the the older two, they they liked it or at least put up with it. I think they liked it. But uh, the youngest son, he just took to it. And I mean, from, you know, a very small age. In fact, he probably can't ever remember not being in the mountains and loving it. And uh, so he's the, the – my other two sons live – Five minutes from me, across the street from each other. Uh, Philip lives in Fort Collins, Colorado, and uh, just so he can have a base to be in in Estes. He's lived in Estes at times, but he's become a uh, he's quite an accomplished climber. I mean, you know, big walls, you know, climb, climbing the diamond face of Longs and all of that sort of thing. So yeah. if you know what I mean, that's you know that's a nine hundred foot granite sheer wall, yeah. and uh, so. And and he a few years ago just kind of on a lark he he climbed Longs. Have you have you ever climbed Longs? You know what it's like. Are you familiar with? I have climbed it, but I've demanding that is. I'm embarrassed to tell you that I've not gone to the top. Philip did Ranger Cabin to Ranger Cabin. That is from you know down at the bottom Ranger Cabin to the summit and back in under four hours. That's wow. that's when he got the uh, the attention of the locals. <laughs> wow, I guess so. <laughs> when you can do something like that, that's 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 dang impressive. Wow, that involves going so. up the North Face and some things like that. But but that's, I mean, I tell people, you know, how how they say I want to climb, and I said, ah, ten to sixteen hours, you know. No, yeah, sure. You yeah. know, depending on just how fast you move, but yeah. Yeah, for the uninitiated. Anyway, I could go on and on and on. I'll tell a story. I'll tell a story. Maybe, maybe, maybe this won't bore people. So, uh, I don't know. Ten years ago, probably more than that. Probably, if I think about it, I can come up with the year. Uh, man, I think it's more like thirteen or fourteen years ago. Um, I hosted a pastors' conference. We did several of them, in fact, out there. But one year, our guest speaker was Eugene Peterson. And uh, it took me forever to convince him to do this because he told me he hated pastors' conferences. <laughs> but, but, but I just, I just, I think I wore him down, and he agreed to come and and do this pastors' conference for us in in Colorado. And he was getting on in years, but I knew that you know he also loves the outdoors and loves the mountains, and and uh, he I couldn't take him on a hike or something like that. So the last day, after thing was done, we still had a day there. I, I just I put him in my car and I drove all over Rocky Mountain National Park and I would get out. We'd get out and I would just name each peak and I would describe what they're like. You know, this is what this one's like. This is the mood of this mountain. This is what this one feels like. This is where this one is dangerous. This is where this one is accessible. And I would just talk. It would bore most people to death. I promise you, Eugene Peterson loved every I spent several hours doing this with him. And uh, after he finally got back home to Montana, he sent me a letter and he says, you know, he said, I told you I hate pastor's conference, but I love this one. It's the best kind of conference I've ever been to. I loved every moment of it. But my highlight was when you introduced me to your friends yeah. <laughs> and he's talking about the mountains. And uh, so that that's a nice story. That is a nice story. What a great influence he 
was on you and all of us. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. My, uh, my youngest goes to school out in Golden, Colorado. So he got a football scholarship to go out there. Mm-hmm. And so of all the places he could have gone in the country, we were quite happy that he wound up. Yeah. Not far from. I know where Golden is. I know, I know exactly where it is. Yeah. Yeah. Colorado School of Mines. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, pound for pound. What's your favorite hike in Rocky Mountain National Park? I would say what you do is is you you go up into Glacier Gorge, which means started you know if you get super early, you start Glacier, Glacier Gorge Trailhead. But the odds of you getting a parking spot there if you're there after four a.m. is pretty slim. Yeah. Uh, so you start maybe from Bear Lake, and then just you know you're you're going to go to Mills Lake, going to take the Fire Trail shortcut, That's say right. six tenths of a mile one way. Yeah, and, 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 and you won't see it. Yeah, you yeah. get you get off the interstate, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and then I think you know in the early morning it's not it's not a long hike. In the early morning, Mills Lake is as beautiful a view as because you you have you have Longs and Pagoda and Chiefs Head all there kind of in front of you. Their arrowheads sort of over on this side, uh, but then just keep going, and you go up to Black Lake. Black Lake is like. I think it's like 5.1 miles one way. But if you know the shortcut, you can take six tenths off that. Uh, but, and then just keep going. Then go up into up, up, a, we call it above black. You know, you're going to pass blue. You're going to go maybe up to whatever, green, frozen lake. Just anywhere way up high yeah. in uh, Glacier Gorge, I think, is my favorite hike. And it's it's not climbing. It is the approach for like... If you're going to climb Pagoda or McHenry or things sure. like that, but it, it just just as a just as a hike, it's not a you're not you're not going to just climb a mountain. You're just going right. to get up there. Um, and, you know, people complain about the crowd. The crowds are only a problem for the parking lot. If you know where to go, you hike half an hour and you don't see anybody. Right. So. Yeah, and most of that hike you just mentioned is is uh, you're still rel- relatively civilized, but then the last bit of it you right start and, to... until you get to black, and then it's right. above black where above you're black. not going to see. I took yeah. a group of guys. Oh gosh, probably about three or four years ago, and a couple had never been, and uh, we got to black that same hike you're talking about. We were about a hundred yeah. yards out, and it was pretty snowy, and a couple of the guys weren't real happy, um, and one one dude just turned around. He just turned around 180 degrees and went down the mountain. I'm like, hey, where's so and so? And they said that he's going to meet us down the car. He had he had had enough. We were a hundred yards from or, or so from the lake. So yeah, it's not. A I, I've, I've I've been to Black. I don't know dozens and dozens of times in it's all beautiful. seasons. I've been there in the winter. Uh, I'll tell you another story. You brought this up. Yes, about mountains. I, I want to tell stories. Let's do it. So Perry and I. That's my wife Perry. We were doing this is maybe five years ago. I'm guessing something like this. We were doing a spring hike to Black. You know, so it was mostly snowshoe, at least once you got past Mills, it's snowshoe stuff. And uh, we were going up, you know, there's ribbon, the ribbon falls right there by, right before you get to Black Lake. And I was, I was going up and I saw, you know, this would be a place where you could glissade down, but don't lose control. And then I looked around and I thought, but if you did lose control, okay, you're going to go into that water there, but you're not going to die. <laughs> That's what I thought. And so we got, we went up to Black Lake, had lunch. We're coming back down. 
you know, I'm going to glissade for sure. You know, sure. glissade, fancy mountaineering term for sliding down. Okay. And but you know, the, you're supposed to you know keep control. Didn't have an ice axe, but kind of use your, your poles. And I glissaded down fine, did fine. And then Perry came, and man, she got out of control. And I said, "Slow down, slow down." She couldn't, you know. And uh, as she went by, I tried to we our our, our fingertips just choo, and then she went right into that water, just just <laughs> like I had thought. You know, somebody could slip here, and they, and they but they, and she was all right. I mean, she twisted her ankle a little bit, and then had a hike out wet, but right. But the, the thing was, I I looked at that and thought oh, I could see how that could happen here, but they wouldn't die. <laughs> I didn't awesome. mean that it was going to be one of us. <laughs> exactly. I've fallen in those waters, and I've fallen in mills a couple of times. Uh, yeah, around the backside. I've, I've hiked across mills when it's completely frozen a few times. Oh, I know. Isn't that weird to do that? It is That's weird. so fun. Uh, okay, so my probably favorite hike out there is. Um, I mean, if you had to force me to take one hike mm-hmm. i'd probably do lawn like and then mm-hmm. if if i was up to it I'd, I'd go on up to crystal above lawn yes yeah i love that that's a beautiful I, sometimes the mosquitoes are really bad at lawn like but that can be anywhere yeah that can be anywhere i don't remember them worse there than anywhere else but yeah well um yeah rocky mountain national park same for me grew up going there and i think it has a very special place in my heart because that was the place primarily where I, where we really as kids saw our dad, my dad, relax. Mm. He was a pastor and uh, really? A really good guy. Um, and I, I love my dad. Um, but there was a lot, it was quite a bit of legalism in our, in our life. And he wore the pastorate, like mm. it was really heavy pressure on him, mm. except when we started going west on I 70 or I 80, whatever the yep. case might be. And he was um, he was almost almost a different person. I, I understand that. I understand yeah. that. Uh, it, Rocky Mountain National Park at various times in my life has been necessary tonic yeah. for my soul. Uh, I, we don't really have to try to rehearse my whole story here, but you know we went through a time beginning about 19 years ago where we really began to transition the church away from a just kind of a consumerist version of American Christianity into a deeper, richer, more respectful of the great tradition sort of church. And that, you know, was not entirely well received. And it created a lot of pressure. And regularly, Perry would just, she would just schedule. She would just say, we're, we're going to fly out. I mean, we always had our time out there in the summer, but she said, I, I've just bought tickets. We're going to leave right after church. We're going to fly out there and be out there all week, and then we can come back. And she just knew that we needed that. And um, so I, I understand the medicinal power of mountains yeah. to really bring healing to the soul. I mean, I don't say that lightly. I mean that. No, me neither. And when you factor that in with what I saw taking place in my dad's like spirit, uh, there was something... Um, I wrote recently that these three things always remained with my dad because because I've been trying to process how I've individuated maybe slightly different from him. But these th- three things always remained. It was Bible and preaching dad. It was rules and religion dad. And there was mountain and freedom dad. Mm. But, the great, but the greatest of these was mountain and freedom dad. No doubt. Yeah. And that's my, not my the, kid. My kids, they tease me and they say, yeah. I remember our vacations. You're dragging us out of bed at 4 a.m. to go on hikes. That's right. (laughs) 
Oh, gosh. Well, there's something beautiful about that. And uh, the beauty piece of it was, was yeah. definitely something. I, and I think in some ways, um, I heard what you were saying, like the medicinal piece. Like in some ways for me too, like I don't know what kind of family we would have been. It was It was not a bad family. It was a great family. But the pressure of church and the legalism and the behavior modification was so heavy. What would I have been like without having seen my dad's spirit light mm. up like that? It, make, it makes me really wonder. It's very, very interesting. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I know it. that, you know how you, you just, you know, on your phone or maybe a computer, you can, just, you can just scroll through like years and years and years and years of photos. What I notice, if I just do it real fast, it's just, you can tell mountains, mountains, mountains. <laughs> yeah. Our family photos. I yeah. mean, if, if we didn't have the mountains... I think we'd have like 12 family photos, you know, <laughs> and that's where we took all of our pictures. Yeah. We're the same way. To totally. Yeah. Same thing. Well, that's cool. Um, now that we've lost all the listeners. <laughs> Except the, the three that like mountains. Exactly. And the three that like you and the one that like me. So there's probably about nine. Um, how about we're going to do this Girardi and uh, intersections right. event line, excuse me, Eventbrite conference in a few weeks. And I'm so honored that you're going to take a few minutes and hang out with us. You want to give us just a quick overview of what you might be talking about? Um, yeah, maybe, or maybe I'll just, I'll tell, I, I always like to frame everything with story. So, so I was earlier this month, I was in New Zealand speaking 12 times it was just you know fly over there speak 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 speak, speak and fly back so it was it's nice to be in new zealand but you know it might as well have been wichita you know because <laughs> i because i just that's all i did was fly over there and speak 12 <laughs> times um but one of the i did a, con, a two-day conference where i think i did six sessions and each session was 90 minutes which was it was 60 minutes of me presenting followed by 30 minutes of Q&A. And one of the questions, one of the first questions in one session, I don't remember how the question was framed or formed. I don't remember what it was exactly. I know it had to do with the cross and that my answer would be Girardian. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought, well, okay, I'm just going to do this. And I knew then, I said, I'm gonna, I knew I think I might have even told him, I'm going to take the entire 30 minutes to answer this question. <laughs> and I gave a 30-minute, off-the-cuff, unprepared summary of the whole thing. You know, the, the mimesis, the scapegoat mechanism, how it's revealed in Scripture, and how Jesus is the way out of that. And Jesus is the one that we can imitate and not end up in some sort of destructive rivalry. And I, I did it for 30 minutes, no notes, no preparation. I didn't know I was going to do that until I got this question. And, I, you know, I was thinking they were getting it. I think they were. They seemed to be to be you know, interested. I got done because we were going to have lunch after that. And a guy came up to me and he, he said, um, I did my PhD on something or other related to Gerard. And he said, that's as good a 30 minute presentation as I've ever heard. And I thought, nice. <laughs> that made nice. me feel, so what am I going to do? Well, I mean, my assignment as it were is, uh, you know, how, what Gerard brought to us. And I, I think of Rene Gerard as kind of like, um, He's like an Einstein mm -hmm. in that, you know, what makes Einstein so remarkable is that just with his own genius intuition, he unlocked a whole other world. 
that we didn't know was there and probably wouldn't have known until, I mean, it just took someone of that kind of genius and instinct. And Gerard's very much the same way. You know, he was always criticized because he didn't stay within one particular discipline. He, he worked all over in all kinds of fields. Um, but what he's left us is so invaluable. Mm -hmm. And, I, I spent an afternoon at Rene Girard's house with him, a friend and I, and um, two friends. And um, this was, I don't know, I, I can't remember dates. It was maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little more. And uh, one of the three of us had had a long relationship with Rene Girard. The other two of us had never met, and we were a little bit starstruck, or maybe a lot starstruck. But... Uh, the, the one friend that he already knew introduced me by saying, now, this is a pastor of, of a big church in the Midwest in a kind of an evangelical world that uses your stuff in his sermons all the time. <laughs> and Renee could hardly believe that. And really? uh, I said, no, I do it. And so I'm going to talk about how what Rene Girard unveils can be taught in the church in a way that is super helpful and super accessible. Now, to be honest, when I bring Girardian theory into how I teach and preach at church, I rarely say, I never, I rarely utter the word Girard because they, they, they're not interested in a French academic. Now, in writing, of course, you know, I cite my sources and I want you to know this is where I'm getting this. Um, but once you have some of those keys and for, you know, Gerard begins with, he's just seeing these patterns in literature, because that's kind of where he starts, and he's, he's, he read everything. Uh, but then he began to see the uniqueness of Scripture, that you have, you have the same pattern of mimetic rivalry and scapegoating and all of that, and the scapegoat mechanism to get out of it. That shows up all over the place. In the Bible as well, but the unique thing about the Scripture is that this is where we really actually hear the voice of the scapegoat and learn that the scapegoat is innocent. And uh, this resulted in a, you know, he, he he grew up a nominal Christian, but then he had a real conversion around the age 35, something like that. He had a cancer scare and some other things, and the Bible was coming to him in a new way, and he became very devout. And that's one of the things that I talked with him about. I just, I kind of, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I was unseemly in the way I did it, but I just kind of grilled him on his orthodoxy, which I already knew, but I wanted to be able to tell people, no, 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 I have sat with Rene Girard in his living room and asked him about what he believed, and I can tell you he is, he is an orthodox Christian confessing and believing, you know, the historic creeds. Yeah. So I'm not going to talk about that, but I'm going to talk about really how uh, what we get from Rene Girard can um, help us in how we teach and preach the scriptures in church. Or something like that. I got a month. Come on, Jonathan. <laughs> I'm going to go down oh, some kind of lane like that. Does that sound all right? Yeah, it sounds great. And that's why I asked you. That's that's awesome. Um, you're smarter than me. I started preaching it. And I, dude, I was reading it like on Friday and preaching it on Sunday and dropping French intellectual stuff. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that in, you can do that in seminary. You can't do that in 
Sunday morning church. No, too you much. Work. Anyway, I've made that mistake before, but you know. I know. So, so you just got to turn it into your own. Like this is Brian Zahn, the medic theory. Or something like that, and then I, I look in church. I never use the word mimetic theory. I'll do it like like at this conference. I use that, and I kind of explain what it means and all that. But but in church, I just kind of do it. Oh, I think you, I think you're wise in doing that. I, yeah. I, I have I guess I have my I have a new book coming out. It's as far as I'm concerned, it's been done forever. But as far as the publisher's concerned, you know they they have to. Cross T's and dot I's and all that. Of course, of course. Uh, but it's on the cross. I haven't changed subjects, by the way. So just, just I haven't changed subjects. I'm, I'm with uh, you. Uh, it's called The Wood Between the Worlds, uh, A Poetic Theology of the Cross. It comes out in February. It's, it's done, done, done. I'm done with it. I'm just waiting for it to come out. Um, it's going to have 16 full-color images in it, but it's a book on the cross. I won't get into all that. But it's it's 19 chapters and then kind of a long poem at the end, uh, which I would think of as looking at the cross through a kind of theological kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. That you, you look at it and you see, oh, it's this, and then and then a little turn, click. And oh, but it's also this. Oh, but it's also this. Oh, but it's also this. One of the things I really uh, dislike about atonement theories is that people tend to decide that there must be an atonement theory, singular. Right. And they just, here's my atonement theory. This is what the cross means. I've got it figured out and I'm done. No, 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 no. No, the cross is enormous. But chapter, well, let's see, what is it? Chapter 12 is entitled The Sacrifice to End Sacrificing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's top to bottom. That's Gerard. Um, and and one of the things here's one of the things Renee Gerard will en- enable us, enable the reader, whoever, to have an anthropological understanding of what's happening at the crucifixion. But he is quick to say, I'm not saying he's he's not saying this is the meaning of the cross. This is the only interpret. This is the only accomplishment of the cross. But it's also part of it. Yeah. And so I'll probably talk along some of those lines too. Um, uh, man. So, so, so Gerard does appear in my latest book, but in one chapter, but a you, whole lot in one chapter. And you finally cite him, so that's good. Oh no, I, 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 I think let's 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 see. I think I probably quote him at the beginning, uh, the sacrifice and sacrificing page one fourteen. <laughs> we're just we're just looking it up here, folks. Let's do it. Let's just make sure. Let's double check Brian's on right now to make sure. Here it is. Um, Quote, the truth of the human condition is twofold. It is both the truth of the mimetic predicament and the truth of the liberation that comes from the revelation of this predicament in the gospel witness to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, which both disclose and overcome the hidden founding murder. Mm. Rene Girard. Things hidden since the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. So that's where we start. Hey, Rene Noel Theophile Gerard was born on Christmas Day. <laughs> I gave us a... <laughs> that's good. Well, Gerard's in uh, my last book too, quite a bit. So, yeah. As well, you know. he's, and it's amazing how how many fields draw yeah. upon yeah. his work. Yeah. And I think he was most surprised that 
you know, Christians like me <laughs> drew deeply and richly upon his work. I think that surprised him. But mm-hmm. I think it also, because I can tell you there was a little bit of disappointment toward the end of his life that that that, that the academic community was somewhat dismissive of him. I think partly they just presented the fact that he was crossing borders and not staying within his own discipline, whatever that was. Yep. And I told him, I mean, I sat there on his couch and told him, I said, well, I said, your lasting influence is going to be probably more in theology than in any other world. And I can tell you that in the theological world, your influence is growing day by day. Yep. I think that made him happy. And I was, I was thrilled to be able to report that to him. Yep. But yeah, he was kind of unaware of that. I don't think I think that he hadn't paid attention to that world. And I don't think he really realized how influential his work was yeah. in the realm of theology. I think there's something that I've got to know about him too. Now I didn't get to meet him personally, so I am uh, I'm jealous of you regarding that. But I think he was very aware of his own mimetic poles, his his own mimetic energy. And in you, when you look at his life, he's constantly kind of withdrawing. And and yeah. what I surmise is he's trying to remove himself from this desire that's you know being reciprocated between him and whatever the rival might be at the time. Jacques well, some some of the time Derrida I can tell you some of it was Jacques Derrida. For sure, <laughs> I can tell you yeah. that. I mean, yeah. I know that. Yeah, me too. So and the whole story you've probably read Cynthia Haven's yes. book, which probably gives I think the best account of. Yeah, him introducing Derrida and Lacan and some of those others. Uh, that's just that's super fascinating. So, yeah, yeah, it is super fascinating. I mean, for me, I don't want to use cliches, but I, I can't seem to avoid it. Um, Gerard is is for me, and it is for a lot of people. It's that red pill, blue pill. It's that yeah. you, there's no turning back. No. Once you see it, it's like, oh my goodness, yeah. Now, then you begin to see it kind of everywhere. Yeah. And and it is true, but that, that does not exempt you from being caught up in all the ne- negative aspects of mimetic rivalry. I mean, oh, no. it, it's not yeah. a panacea, but it, but being aware of it does help. Right. Okay, this is, I'll, I see what's happening here. This is happening. And, you know, you come to the cross, you come to Christ, you you pray, and but but just because... You uh, can opine upon Girardian theory at any particular level. Doesn't mean a whit. Doesn't mean <laughs> about about being somehow automatically immune to being sucked into that. No, I right? think of right. I think of the scapegoating mechanism as like some sinister AI that's constantly mm. reworking in the backdrop of my life, and just about the time I think, you know, I've got it kind of named. It it morphs into something else and uh so i totally agree the thing about the scapegoat mechanism the thing that makes it so i I think i'm going to use the word demonic is that it works right it it works i mean there is that's the magical part of it that you want to produce unity in a group in a marriage wherever in an office situation come on find the scapegoat Project all of your anger and fear and self-loathing upon that scale. And it does, for a time, bring this cathartic relief mm-hmm. and a sense of unity mm-hmm. and coming together. Now, the only problem is, is it's demonic. But, man, <laughs> it works. 
and uh, it works till it doesn't work. And then well, it, it's exactly, and even even when it works, it does so at the expense of a of a victim. I mean, it's right. still it's still you know we make them bear our sins, and and it, yeah. so it's it's always unrighteous. <laughs> yeah, it's always but, uni- unanimity minus one. Yeah. Everyone's in unison, minus the one. There's always that one, that one group that's left out. And so what Jesus, here you bring out the preacher me, Jesus is the one that finally and fully took all the blame. We don't need to blame anymore because all of the blame has been finally and fully taken by the Lamb of God, mm-hmm. the innocent scapegoat, mm-hmm. and took it down to hell where it belongs, mm-hmm. and then came back not seeking revenge, not seeking payback, coming back, speaking the first new first word of the new world, peace be with you. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus calls us to follow him, but he says, now we're not going to play that way anymore. We're not right. playing that game anymore. Right. This is where Gerard, though, is a little bit pessimistic. You know, his last book, I think it was his last book, Battling to the End. Yep. I've read it a couple of times. I don't know if I'll read it a third time because it's, it's pretty bleak. But uh, he he sees the world stepping into a place where it's in a difficult situation in that the, the, the gospel has succeeded in generally inserting within our collective consciousness the idea that, you know, the, the scapegoat is innocent. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of know that uh, by now. And... So that that diminishes the power of the mechanism to actually work as well, because as Gerard says, to have a scapegoat is is to not know that you have one. Once you realize, oh, this is my scapegoat, then it doesn't. The magic's broken. So, on the other hand, though, the only alternative then to ever escalating uh, rivalry leading to horrific violence is to just is to follow Jesus. So. So if the if the gospel only halfway succeeds in that the scapegoat mechanism doesn't we're we're in a we're in a bad place where we can't find a break anymore to stop you know ever escalating mimesis yep. leading to horrific violence so it's it's kind of it's Jesus or disaster <laughs> and now we're just talking if people don't know what we're talking about there now they they've completely tuned out but. Well, it's true, but um, there will be some Girardians, and people who are interested in it might check into it. And I do think yeah. it's okay to give fair warning up front that, yes, for a lot of Girardians, it gets regressive is the word I use sometimes use. And there's a downward spiral. Um, and Girard himself, for all his brilliance, is a bit fuzzy on how to get out of it because you're right, battling to the end is a depressing book. I've I've said ever since I've read it that, you know, here, here he does his last book with this famous war general. Yeah. How great would it have been for Girard to have done his last book on Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Or, or Dorothy Day or whatever. And I, I just have a sense that maybe that that might have pulled him or, or maybe he had dreams of doing that after. I don't know. But right. it's frustrating. So. You know what people should do? They should probably pick up a copy of Theology of Consent, (laughs) where I try to use open relational theology to critique a bit of Girard, as as overwhelming as that was, because I realized halfway through my work that, oh, crap, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to use this to help try to figure out ways out. 
And I do think there are ways out, but um, yeah, Gerard's slightly fuzzy on that. Interesting how that worked. Well, um, yeah, so again. Well, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, when someone's like, they, they, they read a line in a book somewhere, or they heard someone speak, they heard a podcast, maybe they heard this one, they go, Gerard. I don't even know what you're talking about, but I think I'm interested. Where should I start? Where, where do you, I know what I do, but I want to hear what you, where you point them. Sure. Um, well, it kind of depends on what I've read the most recent, but currently huh. I, I usually start, if you're going to read straight up Gerard, I usually start with, I see Satan fall like lightning. That's, exactly what I say. Yeah. That's probably the best one. Um, if they're going for straight up, I, and if I'm not trying to have too much hubris, I will, <laughs> I will talk about theology of consent because I, I, yeah, of course. I spend a lot of time to try to outline the medic theory. Mm -hmm. But here's another book. Are you aware of Luke Burgess? Um, I think it's called Wanting. And I'm not. It's about he's about two years old, and right now he's probably the most popular um, non-theological Gerard. Right. He was. He really, I think, got to know Gerard through Peter Thiel, who was influenced mm -hmm. a lot of the non-theological stuff. But Luke's stuff, he, Luke is a Catholic. I think he's a professor at American University or somewhere. That book is strong. That's a very strong book. Um, so so those those two, and then uh, and then if I feel comfortable, I'll mention my book too. But yeah. You know, you, you know what else? That... That uh, CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company series. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called, but, you know, just Google CBC, Gerard. The video, yeah. That's really good. It's really good, yeah. That's really good. And then uh, Raven Foundation, I'll usually send people there. Mm -hmm. um, my friend Adam there. So there's a growing number of things, and you're right. It's it's picking up steam, and I, I think it ha it's not the entire answer, but I think right. it the seeds of it are part of what the hope for um, our absurd empire nationalist religion that we're all stuck in. I think it yeah. gives us hope. We don't have Amen. to have an apocalypse, Brian. We just don't have to. I, not in oh. not in the violent sense of the word. I don't care. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. There's always hope because uh, love is endlessly creative. Right. Amen. Yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to seeing Oppenheimer. That I hear that's the feel oh, good man. movie of the summer. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I don't I, think it's a feel good movie, but no. but I I'm I'm eager. I think it comes out this week. It's I am in too. Theaters. I am too, and I love uh, Christopher Nolan's stuff, um, mm -hmm. and so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, what do you? Let's see. I guess you already talked a bit about what you're working. What's what's the project? What's the book called? The Wood Between the Worlds. Oh, right. Right a on. poetic theology of the cross, and awesome. uh, pretty excited about it. Pretty excited about it. Um, I think it's going to look good. If, you know, I mean, that sounds funny to say, but I think it's going to look good, and it's got uh, it's got art in it. Yeah, and um, it's it's a way I think of thinking about the cross theologically that is not dry and academic. Hmm. I'm, I'm not trying to insult all the academics out there, but no, but I'm not no. an academic. I mean, I, I graze in those fields, and I'm I'm not unfamiliar with academic work, especially in the realm of theology. But 
but that's not who I am, and it's not who I speak to. Right. And so, um, I, I, I'm a pastor that feels like it's my job to read the books that the vast majority of Christians are never going to read, mm-hmm. and then bring them the gems in the form of maybe more popular books or sermons or whatever it is I do. And so this book's kind of like that. Yeah, our, our world, our culture definitely needs that, especially the further we get away from, uh, unfortunately, young people reading. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think it's super important. Yeah, I just um, I just wrote the introduction. I don't have a copy of it here. For um, a book on... Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace and Confessions. It's wow. two authors, yeah. Ron Dart, Canadian philosopher, theologian, and Bradley Jerzak. Some people may know of him, my dear friend, also a Canadian theologian. And they asked me to write the introduction. So, so, so Ron Dart wrote a kind of an analysis of War and Peace, and, and uh, Bradley Jerzak did the same thing with Confession, but you know, confessions is about this big, and <laughs> war and peace is about this yeah. big. But in my introduction, I talk a little bit about the value of reading big books, and just not—it's—it's it's, it's an act of rebellion against mm. the commercial forces let loose in our world that want to intentionally reduce our attention span to something between fifteen and thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. And if if that happens to you, you will be easily manipulated by very skillful and unscrupulous people. So I think we should do what we can to expand our attention span. Yeah, and this is and reading, true. Reading big, reading big books is an exercise in that. I, Absolutely. I, in that. I do too. And this is true even of any pastors who might be listening and theologians uh, because we get sucked into, again, some of it is the mimesis part of it. But, you know, um, my part of my little journey was I was in the middle of like, we weren't a mega church, but I was church planting in the, in the vein of, you know, mega church, um, church growth movements. Yeah. Yeah. Church growth. It's, it's all that same gravitational pull in about 2007, I had the thought, you know what? I'm so sick of reading. I said, I'm just only going to read dead guys. (laughs) <laughs> and I did that for about two years. I read yeah. no one that was still living, um, which is kind of a bummer if you're an author, because then, you know, you can't really <laughs> recommend that. Someone you know, says, read my book. You have wait. to die first. Exactly. <laughs> you have to die. Um, but that was a turning point for me. And so very similar to what you're saying. And of course, a lot of those dead guys books were very long, but same point either way, it's there, there's something if it's lasted that long. There's something right. substantive there right. that is a. It's an act of defiance, and um, T- time mm-hmm. is a powerful source of vetting. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's 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 sometimes hard to tell. You know, the diamonds from the crap <laughs> in right. in real time. Right. But you know, if certain books are being read a hundred, hundred and fifty years later, two hundred years later, exactly, yeah, there's probably a reason why. Yeah. Probably, probably wrong. That's that's a good rule of thumb. Well, it's always fun to talk. We'll hook up again in a month, and yeah. um, hopefully yeah. a bunch of people. I'm, look, I'm looking forward to it. I'm all excited about. It. I'm Me a little too. bit. I'll just be honest. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit intimidated. 
because it's all you guys with all of your fancy degrees and and me just BZ up at St. Joe. <laughs> no, no, no. No, uh, you, and that's, that's kind of you to say, um, and I hope it's not, I hope it doesn't take no, root I'm not trying much. to be kind, I'm being honest. <laughs> no, I hope it, I know, I hope it doesn't take root too much because uh, there's a reason we invited you. It's really important and uh, you have a, a really incredible gift to be able to, you know, bring your insight, your intelligence, and also to understand some of these people. So, well, I'm told, honored. To, I mean, I'm honored to be invited to join you. Uh, sure. We're honored to have you. And I think I told you this. I think you might have you might have been the one that introduced me to Gerard. Really? Um, indirectly, maybe maybe back maybe back in those 2014, 2015 days. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't remember for sure, but either way, no man. Really glad to have you. Um, and. I think we we need to create. We just make something up so we can go to Estes Park and do some kind of yeah, conference or something. That's it. Like that. That's it. Yeah. I mean, even if it's not any good, we just go. You and I can just go hike, and yeah. and then we can make some. Yeah, it's today. it's kind of my it's my happy place. I know. I know. Is but, is to be out there, and you can't really tell. I mean, we're in my basement. This is also my my writing desk. Mm -hmm. But if you kind of look behind me, well, that's see the see that uh, black and white painting behind me. That's Long's Peak. That's a oh, photo. Yeah, yeah. That's a black and white yeah. photo of Long's Peak. Yeah. And and we sort of this basement is all got up like a mountain cabin. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, it's the every, every everything here there. is there's a there's an elk chandelier above my head. You can't <laughs> see it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. this is trying to, you know, capture a little bit of Estes Park and stick it here in St. Joseph in my basement. <laughs> I, I I get it. Almost all the like there's that Hickory Rocker. I think we we bought that out there somewhere. And so, yeah, this is this is a little bit of Rocky Mountain National Park right here. All right, man. Well, this was fun. We'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for joining the podcast, and uh, we'll be in touch. 